we're really having to respond real time to shifting context, shifting crises. I think that that really started with the with the pandemic and with COVID-19. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector, tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This is part two of our deep dive into tech policy, in particular, focusing on policies which relates to countering terrorism and violent extremism. If you've missed part one, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to that. Charlotte Wilner, who's the executive director at the Trust and Safety Professional Association, talks about her time working at Facebook and shares some incredible insight into how this space has changed and adapted over the past decade or so. There's a lot more we know now about online radicalization, uh, and there's a lot more resources available to professionals working this angle in trust and safety. Tech Against Terrorism, for example, has a whole resources section that my early team would have found just so helpful. GIFCT is here now. You know, in the early days, we we didn't have a lot of that set of resources or a lot of that sort of external support. To continue this discussion, I'm joined by Jessica Mason, Head of Global Policy and Public Affairs at Clubhouse and Josh Baraki, Head of Trust and Safety at Zoom. Throughout this episode, we'll explore what informs tech company terms of service around terrorism and violent extremism, how the COVID pandemic has changed this landscape, and discuss the various challenges tech companies face in implementing these policies. First, let's hear from Jessica and Josh about the latest trends when it comes to tech policy to counter terrorism online. We're really having to respond real time to shifting context, shifting crises. I think that that really started with the with the pandemic and with COVID-19 and seeing companies have to understand violent extremism, not only in, in terms of sort of far right extremism, which was evolving. And I think how people think about terrorism more traditionally and making sure that we're balanced there. But then with COVID-19, I think companies really also had to think about what is the overlap with disinformation and how are extremist groups using disinformation to their advantage and are we adapting our policies quickly enough. And then, you know, really in the last year, we've had big global events with the fall of Kabul and the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. And what does that mean for companies' platforms? The situation right now, the war in in Ukraine and how are companies having to respond very, very quickly to evolving their policies to make sure that they're in line with the principles and the overall kind of tone they want to be setting on their platform. So I think more and more companies are realizing they can't just kind of set these policies and leave them, that they have to have teams that are really invested in doing research, talking to experts, being able to move very, very quickly, train global teams to move quickly and, and adapt to a very quickly shifting political landscape. Actually, I'll, I'll pivot off of that if you don't mind. Um, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I do think the sort of misinformation and ties that we see that we sort of started to see with you know, violent extremism or like extremist groups is something that we start to see a little bit more of. And, and those are really sticky problems, right? Because, you know, we were sort of evidence-based, which I know everybody is, but at Zoom, we're evidence-based because we don't, we're a meetings platform, right? Um, So we don't really see within the meetings, but we might get a notification that says, you know, a, a report. Um, that says somebody's hosting a meeting and the meeting uh, might involve something that looks like vaccine disinformation. And so then we have to ask ourselves, like, 
because there we've seen loose ties between some vaccine disinformation and some groups that are tied with uh, violent extremism or just extremism. And so then we have to, and we've, we've actually reached out to Tech Against Terrorism for some advice around this on occasion, right? Which is, do we have enough evidence just on the basis of the meeting title alone and the name of the group uh, that might be hosting the meeting or any particular name and uh, associated with the meeting that would tie, that would actually approve you know, for our purposes, before we take action, that that the group that's hosting this is in fact a violent extremist group. Um, so that's one thing I think uh, that was a sort of a great point, Jessica, and it sort of stoked that memory. I do think we've seen that a little bit. Well, and I think it raises really interesting questions around freedom of expression more generally, and in that companies are both having to move very quickly in response to local context to ensure that they're both combating violent extremism, but also respecting freedom of expression. But also, not every product is a product where you're posting text, you're posting images, and the goal is to broadcast it to the world, right? And a lot of the discussion around policies and content moderation has been focused on those types of products. And when you're having a small meeting on on something that's really more akin to historically how you might have a phone call, and Clubhouse has features like that as well, right, where you're having private conversations, private rooms, or small group conversations, uh, what what is the right balance to strike there in terms of, of freedom of expression and privacy? And, and we have to consider all of those things when we're, when we're weighing these decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and the temperatures get so hot, right? Because you might get reports, right? And so a lot of people may report and say, you know, did you know, or I found this posting, whether it be on the dark web or a Reddit board or a Telegram group or a Twitter post, you know, this group is doing such and such. So we may get a a report from a person or entity and they really want us to do something about it because in their estimation, the, this group is a violent extremism group, or maybe it's a, you know, they say this group is uh, engaged in terrorism. And so to your point, Jessica, exactly. Like those are, those are tough. Like unless there's some evidence um, that we have that we can look at, objective evidence that we can look at, it's tough to draw a conclusion, you know, that, that, that the person reporting didn't have some other motivation for reporting, particularly when we you know, we do have an obligation to let people express themselves, you know, freely, so long as, um, you know, again, there's no evidence that they're doing so in violation of our community standards or the law. Let's hear a bit about Clubhouse and Zoom's specific policies relating to tackling terrorist and violent extremist content. If you've never used Clubhouse, it's a relatively new social audio app where users can communicate in audio chat rooms. These rooms can accommodate groups of thousands of people. Jessica says the platform's team is relatively small and it works hard to follow the latest government guidance and relies on organizations such as Tech Against Terrorism to help inform its policies. First and foremost, one of the the clearest policies is that we prohibit prescribed groups and their members. So we use a combination of government lists who have prescribed uh, terrorist organizations, violent extremism groups, and we, we don't allow them on Clubhouse. We don't allow praising or glorifying them. We also don't allow incitement to violence. We don't allow graphic violence. We don't have a lot of space on Clubhouse as a social audio platform for images, but the space we do have, we don't allow graphic violence in, uh, in images. Having the government lists, uh, the prescribed groups, and being able to 
use those groups and sort of consult with expert agencies is really important for a company of our size. We're just about to hit 100 people. We don't have the resources to sort of stand up our own research organization for designating dangerous organizations like others have. And so being able to have lists of prescribed groups to rely on is actually incredibly important. I think speaks to the importance of collaboration between tech and governments and communication in, in combating violent extremism online. And in addition to prohibiting prescribed groups, you know, that doesn't mean that for non-prescribed groups, we kind of take a hands-off approach. We forbid statements that incite, glorify, or promote violence. We uh, forbid attempts to recruit members, solicit funds, and so on. And so we try to take a really strong approach in all of these policies and then work to consult government resources as well as resources from groups like Tech Against Terrorism, which have been so important for a company of our size to be able to access. Zoom is a cloud-based video conferencing service you can use to virtually meet with others, either by video, audio, or both. As Josh says, the platform has three main policies linked to tackling terrorist and violent extremist content. Our first, our terrorism, violent extremism policy. So we make it really clear that there's no place for terrorist or violent extremist groups on Zoom or anyone affiliated with those or that promote those activities. And then we sort of go in through line by line what what that means. Um, So... Terrorist organizations are groups that are subject to national or international terrorism designations. And so um, I think as Jessica reviewed, we too look at U.S. and international designations uh, to make those determinations. And then we define what a violent extremist group, which is a group that identifies uh, through their stated purpose, publications or actions as an extremist group or have engaged in or currently engage in violence and or promotion of violence as a means to further their cause or that, that target civilians and their acts or promotion of violence. We look at the activities both on or off of Zoom to determine, you know, whether they would fall under this definition. And then we give some very specific examples in our community standards about how we apply that. The one thing I will say about all of these policies is, again, and I, I don't mean to toot our host's horn too much, but like one of the reasons we were so excited about, you know, joining Tech Against Terrorism, GIFCT, and other organizations like Global Network Initiative is to sort of like use the brain trust of people that focus on this all the time. Because I said, one of my favorite expressions is sticky wicket. And like, these are sticky wickets. The second bucket is our hateful conduct policy, right? Which is, we don't want people to to use Zoom to promote violence against or threaten or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, caste, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability, or serious disease. And then we also uh, prohibit the glorification of violence, similar to what Jessica said, which is you can't use Zoom to threaten or call for violence, serious physical harm, death or disease to an individual or group of people. We don't allow people to celebrate any violent act that inspires others to replicate it or targets people because of their membership in a protected group. We can't talk about Zoom without talking about the pandemic. An abrupt shift to remote work for many businesses around the world, as well as the need for people to connect socially, transformed Zoom into a household name practically overnight. Josh says this unexpected change in who was using the platform and how it was being used forced the company to rethink its policies. In the middle of the pandemic, people started using Zoom for all sorts of things that like, I don't think anybody really would have anticipated not knowing the pandemic um, was going to happen, right? Like, Because for the most part, pre-pandemic, Zoom was business to business, right? Big businesses used it to talk to one another. After the pandemic, and uh, somebody quoted this to me from the Wikipedia page, like on one day in March, we had something like 2.3 million signups. And and by 
late March, April, we had something like 300 million daily uses of Zoom, right? So um, not users, but uses. So people logging in and out, but they were using it for all kinds of things like happy hours and, you know, all sorts of things, including events. So they, you know, a person would just host a big event um, using Zoom and they'd post a link on Twitter, which a whole separate security and safety challenge around that, but they'd post a link on Twitter and they'd invite 500 of, you know, people and they'd have an event. So at that point, the use of Zoom became more public facing than just like meeting to meeting. And so we figured we should have a rule set um, that would guide people around that particular use, that open use of Zoom versus just the closed use of Zoom. Uh, but it interjected all kinds of other new challenges for us, especially with our enterprise and EDU customers. So like our academic institutions where they said to us, what are you doing to our academic classroom environments? You're going to apply our, your community standards to our, you know, our classroom environments. And so um, if you look to Zoom's Trust Center, you'll see as a result of that, we've had to create some special policies that we've published. And one of them is our academic freedom commitment, uh, just to note and be very clear about how we do apply community standards in those circumstances. Um, so far, the rules have held up really, really well, and we've developed a lot of internal processes. You know, I think any trust and safety function should be humble um, and earnest and recognize, and I think Jessica made this point early on, that like there's constantly sort of changing and there's always something you can learn. And so you should be able to adjust to a certain extent. And so we've we've done that to learn what works and wasn't doesn't work considering our product. But the last thing I'll point out is as we've developed all these things, we've stressed um, to that point that context is always uh, really, really important. For the most part, Zoom is still a place for small, private, ephemeral conversations uses in the living room or the conference room or point to point. And so we don't always have the content um, that other platforms might have to apply our community standards. Um, so in that sense, like without the content, without the evidence to apply our community standards or their circumstance to apply our community standards, there's a good amount of reports that are dismissed. Uh, we just don't have enough evidence to make our decision. As we heard from Josh, tech companies are constantly required to review and adapt their policies to keep up with the changing landscape. And he says there are several factors which influence that. Proactively, we do continue to monitor the trust and safety content moderation landscape. We look at legislation emerging all over the world, as, as uh, you all are expert in, and you know whether it's the DSA or the online harms or the Australian version of the online harms or even the United States as they start debating things like earn it and other uh, legislative initiatives around 230, we have to sort of keep uh, a firm eye on those and then how those um, might or might not apply to Zoom, you know, and Zoom's product, which again is a little bit unique in terms of it's not a product that amplifies and promotes content generally. So uh, we keep a track of that. We join civil society groups um, like Tech Against Terrorism, um, and we lean, you know, on these partnerships and we engage very proactively um, so we can continue to gain insight that these groups can provide to us, you know, and we can learn. And then we sort of reactively continue to make sure we're tracking very closely with our enforcers, like our analysts, uh, about reporting trends and uh, all those sorts of things. So what are some of the unique challenges for platforms such as Clubhouse and Zoom when it comes to actually implementing these policies? Here's Josh and Jessica. I mean, the main challenge for us, which in some ways for is a feature, right, not a bug, um, is 
that the vast majority of our user content in Zoom is ephemeral, as we've talked about, and takes place in really small, unrecorded private meetings that aren't really advertised anywhere, right? So like literally your conversations amongst your family or small business calls and the majority of, and we've, we have data to back this up, but like the majority of our meetings are, are very small. And so, you know, contrary to perception, like we just don't have a lot of content that's open and out there and, you know, for everybody to access. And we don't really have currently uh, a mechanism to promote uh, or amplify content outside of another social media platform. So uh, that means that in the majority of the cases, like we have very little content to actually evaluate um, by which to make decisions. So uh, we do have some metadata, uh, plus the information that the reporter chooses to share with us. But in practice, again, as we said before, we end up dismissing a a good amount of cases just because there's not sufficient evidence. And we have to maintain, well, I'm a former prosecutor, so uh, we've applied a preponderance of the evidence standard, right? So I did some clinics and training of our operations team as to what that means. Um, and that's what they should use to make decisions as to whether uh, one of our community standards has been violated. Um, and so when there isn't enough content or metadata to take the action, it results uh, in a dismissal. One of the things that we were trying to do at Zoom and will continue to try to do is to like empower our users to make their own spaces safe. We have a bunch of tools currently in our product, uh, which allows like a host to reclaim the safety over a meeting. And you know, as we think about rolling out other uh, product features like Zoom events or on Zoom, like we're trying to design them with safety in mind, just to give like our users just more power and ability to you know police their own spaces for the most part. So that's sort of important given the way our our product works. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of similarities here and and there's also some differences as there are between products and I think why we we have to be mindful about uh, creating policies that that meet the needs of the product and the communities using the product but we've also been you know really adamant about building due process into our into our policies and and that we don't want to be actioning users and and taking actions against users when there isn't evidence. And so when um, a clubhouse, when there's a clubhouse room going generally and and a user reports something to us while the room is live, we then retain the audio in that case. And so we retain the audio for the purposes of our investigation. And then once the investigation is closed, we delete it. But there's a lot of cases in which people report things to us after the fact or something that they heard about that had happened where we just don't have the audio, the audio is gone, or they they contact us through support, right? And they try to email us and and they haven't reported in the product and we don't we don't have the audio. And and so there are cases where there are those pieces of potential violations, I guess, could be dismissed because of lack of evidence. But we have built a lot of systems and taken a lot of feedback to try and gather evidence when someone is telling us something's wrong. So upon receiving a report while a room is live or shortly thereafter, we're able to retain the audio for a short period of time to investigate. And I think one of the one of the big challenges that we have faced, and this is less in the violent extremism space, you know, with things like violent extremism, child safety, we just take a zero tolerance policy, right? We don't. We just don't allow it on our platform at all. And it gets trickier with things like misinformation or kind of hate-based conspiracies where you get a report of someone who is speaking in a room and they might have a misinformed opinion on a medical issue, for example. And in that same room, a doctor or a researcher gets up and challenges that opinion and actually educates them and, and cites research and recent studies and data 
And it feels, it doesn't always feel like the right thing to take away someone's access to a platform, even temporarily where they're learning and their misinformed opinion was just corrected by someone with incredible medical expertise. And so that's something that we're constantly weighing how we think about our policies and our enforcement is that we can't just prohibit misinformation, right? I mean, we all make mistakes. We all are misinformed about uh, different different things at different times. And the beauty of conversation and connecting in a global community is that that misinformation and, and those misinformed opinions can be challenged. Or if you were taught a conspiracy about a religious group growing up and you you know are encountering people for the first time who are challenging that perception for you and correcting it, that's a really incredible opportunity. And so it's something that we try to be really mindful of in our policy enforcement, but it definitely does not make it as clean cut as just removing an image or a video from the internet where it's kind of a one-way broadcast or a one-way stream. So what's their advice for anyone wanting to start their own platform or for any smaller platforms thinking about their counterterrorism policies? I would say, and you didn't pay me, I'll let everyone know you didn't pay me to say this up front, but I would start by working with Tech Against Terrorism. I think that's been incredibly valuable. I think we've been really lucky as a company to have great funding and incredible support from our funders. And so we were able to build a huge trust and safety team from the get-go and invest a lot in in policy, but that's not the case for every company, right? And so Tech Against Terrorism is such a valuable resource to be able to access and access things like sample policies, research on organizations, lists of groups. So I would that would be my first step if I'm just starting a company. I think the second thing would be start out thinking about your principles and values as a company and who you are and what does that mean for the safety of your community? What are the trade-offs that you want to make between privacy and safety? Because sometimes those things can be at odds and really have a good understanding of that. And then think about what's unique about your product. What is the thing that your product does that other products don't do? What are the things that would make it difficult for you to just copy and paste you know, other people's policies from the internet and how are you going to address those unique aspects of your product in line with with your principles and values as a company. And, and I would start out trying to do all three of those things. And, and you'll find that if you have that kind of solid backbone of principles, values, understanding about the uniqueness of your product and the unique, the unique challenges, that I think it becomes a lot easier to write some of your policies and also to communicate them to your users. That was a great answer. I mean, I totally agree. I would advise them before they even start writing to think carefully what their values are as a company, right? Like you need to align what your values and principles are as a company. Uh, just sort of a brief story on that. Um, as part of our community standards, you know, when we started drafting them in 2020, we actually did a series of meetings where we actually posed scenarios for our C-suite. And ask them to look at those scenarios and then to sort of uh, react to them. Like, what would you do under this circumstance? And so we did that to sort of scene set our community standards with them and to develop, to help develop our principles and align them from the top to the bottom of the organization. And again, that's just so critical. Like, what are our principles? What are our values? I think the next thing is we have to understand, again, the product. What's what's our revenue model? Like, who are we? Who is our target customer? What's the primary use of Zoom? Um, I think that's that's really important. Where in the stack are we? That's like a term that if you're a trust and safety nerd, like probably everyone here, you hear people talk about the stack. But like, 
you know, you got the people on the edge, which is the sort of the metas and the Twitters. And then you've got like a bunch of people down the bottom, all the way down to like DNS servers, like, you know, uh, and we're somewhere in the middle and there's a lot of debate right now what that means. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure Clubhouse is sort of, you know, in the same boot, like, where are we in that stack? We don't fit neatly at the top and we're certainly not at the bottom. So we think about that. And then again, who are, who are our customers and what are their expectations of Zoom? What is their expectation about uh, what Zoom should be doing here? And after we do all that, then we start writing and we might start benchmarking. So by benchmarking, we may pull a bunch of community standards from every other platform we could find all across the stack. And what you're, what I think our research is showing is, is that a bunch of different companies that previously were not in the business of content moderation are now in the business of content moderation, whether they're, you know, at the AWS level, like all the way up to the top. And so you see a whole wide, I mean, Coinbase just released a, uh, a blog about, you know, how they think about content moderation. So we look at all those different things as well as part of our benchmarking. And then we sort of use that to, to start our writing. Um, but I think, as Jessica said, we don't start by grabbing that first set of rules and saying, yeah, it looks pretty good. Um, we need to think through all of those things before we actually go to publication. And I guess the final thing, which is, um, again, you're not paying me for this, you know, is uh, is to look to other experts. Tech Against Terrorism is expert around this GIFCT Global Network Initiative. We have a, a bunch of academics that are sort of on speed dial that we sort of like just ask advice around and, they, and they're generous with their time. Um, you know, letting us play off of them a little bit. So don't go it alone, I guess, uh, is another thing I, I would say. Try to sort of really milk uh, the community of experts out there uh, for their thoughts. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we continue to work with tech companies and help them build their policies around countering terrorist and violent extremist content, as Fabian Tarrant from the TAT team explains. So at Tech Against Terrorism, we work with a range of tech companies, and our support and resources are varied to reflect the different services that those tech companies provide. Uh, we offer bespoke support through our mentorship program, as well as more scalable support and additional resources, and that's really through the knowledge sharing platform. In terms of the mentorship program, that's since 2018 that Tech Against Terrorism has mentored about 30 tech companies or more to help them tackle terrorist use of their services, whilst also respecting human rights and importantly upholding freedom of speech. Our mentorship program also supports strengthening transparency and accountability mechanisms around content moderation. And this process leads to either membership for the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, or GIFCT, and to our own membership program. To kind of describe the types of tech companies that we have, our mentees and members really represent the broader tech sector. So that includes social media, search engines, marketplaces, messaging services, and even more. And that really highlights the diversity of the tech sector in terms of the resources, user bases, and also different approaches to content moderation. As a bit of insight into what this looks like in practice, for the first step in the mentorship process, we conduct an in-depth review of the platform's content standards. So from this review, we provide bespoke policy recommendations. And these recommendations really focus on ensuring that the platforms have policies in place that can adequately prevent and also counter terrorist and violent extremist exploitation of services. And so since doing so, more than 15 content standards have been updated based on our policy recommendations to date. But in addition to the policy review, all of our mentees benefit from our open source intelligence capacity. And so each platform will receive a bespoke intelligence brief that provides an overview of the terrorist and violent extremist threat to its platform. 
This is really in addition to already being alerted of content that is affiliated with designated terrorist groups located on their services from the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform, or TCAP. And so while the mentorship is more bespoke support, our knowledge sharing platform, or the KSP, is scalable support, and it really acts as an accompanying resource to that mentorship program. So the knowledge sharing platform is free, and we developed this to provide smaller tech companies with a collection of interactive tools and resources that is designed to support their operational and policy-oriented efforts, particularly when it comes to developing and implementing an effective but also human rights-compliant counterterrorism response. This is really something that was based on our research at Tech Against Terrorism, showing that small platforms are in need of support in understanding the threat to their services, but also building pragmatic ways to moderate terrorist content effectively. And so really to support that, we came up with a sort of one-stop shop solution or holistic approach to content moderation and policies related to counterterrorism. And so these resources include research and analysis on, for example, terrorist use of the internet, such as the threat landscape, and prescribed terrorist organizations across jurisdictions, um, an overview of the global online regulation landscape, and then also guidelines and recommendations on content standards and also transparency reporting. And this is really meant to alleviate that burden that content moderators as well as trust and safety teams face, particularly of smaller platforms, when they're responding to terrorist content and other legal activity. But it can also help to be used as a more proactive tool particularly for those platforms that are trying to understand how they can shape their policies. And so we've received a few testimonials from different tech companies that are using the knowledge sharing platform, and they've really highlighted the usefulness in terms of the KSP providing guidance, acting as a trusted source, and also having all of the resources in one place. And to finally just visualize this in terms of really who is signed up to the platform and using this resource, we have right now close to 40 different tech companies that are currently registered, and they represent across 14 different tech platform types. And so it's really exciting to see how engaged these platforms are with the resources that we provide. And they will often have several team members signing up and from different areas, such as trust and safety, public policy, content moderation. And, and so we're really trying to constantly update these materials and in doing so, just ensure that it remains accurate and relevant, especially given the constantly evolving threat and regulatory landscapes. If you want to find out more about our membership and mentorship program, or request access to our knowledge sharing platform, we'll pop a link in the show notes. A huge thank you to today's guests, Josh Parecki and Jessica Mason, and for that insight from Fabian Terrence. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at techversusterrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.